0: off your device. That's SoberLink.com forward slash T A M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. And our guest today is Tyler Farnham, and he is going to talk about his recovery from opioid addiction and how it all started with a near-fatal skydiving accident. So before we start, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does get us a lot of exposure. Also, think about sharing the podcast with a friend. I would really appreciate it, and uh, that would mean a lot to me. And if you wanna continue the conversation online after the podcast, please join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online there as well. Hello everyone, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Tyler Farnham. And he is going to talk about his journey through addiction and recovery. And Tyler, I'm excited to hear your story. You want to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, thank you, Dwayne. Hello, Dwayne. Hello, listeners. My name is Tyler Farnham, and I am from Cocoa Beach, Florida, and now residing in Bali, Indonesia.
0: All right. So thank you for um, doing this all the way from Bali.
1: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's just... uh jump in and kind of talk about your story?
1: Yeah, so something that's all too common in the U.S. right now, and it has been for quite so many years, is the opioid epidemic. And I've been just enthralled with hearing people's stories because I lived through it myself. And being a resident of Cocoa Beach, I ended up, after having a a very serious having accident, I ended up to be the perfect candidate for the prescription drug. And before that, this was in 2009, and before that, I hung out with, I had a group of friends in high school that I hung out with, and like a lot of kids do, you start drinking, you you dabble with different kinds of drugs. I did do that. I never went overboard by any means. And when I actually had my first pain pill, I remember specifically it was a uh, 20 milligram Percocet. So I dabbled a little bit with pain medication and I, and I knew what the feeling was. And then once I had the accident, once I found I was the perfect candidate, what did I do? I drove to South Florida along with a friend of mine who he had a pretty extreme injury as well. He was a, a shark attack victim. So you have a Ive survivor and a shark attack survivor that are going to South Florida to a pain clinic along with so many people that came from the Midwest. And we got the, the ample supply of pain medication. And during that time, I was a lifeguard captain in my hometown, Cocoa Beach. And I found myself just on this, I, I called it a double-edged sword because at that time, I did need something to, to allow me to, to push through the pain.
0: Right, right. And
1: I've said this so many times that it, it really did help me in a lot of ways. Whereas after you know about a year and a half, two years, I found myself to a point in life I mean I'm 36 now at the time I was 26 27 and I found myself using them as a crutch to get through my days and then what I found if I did not have them it was it was depression and it was it was it was a struggle it was a true struggle and I mean to add to the drama I was going through a, a heartbreak at the time as well when I was when I was on these drugs and so then when I decided to get off of them it was a decision I made because I was still young and I had a job that had a lot to do with leadership. And I was, I was being looked to as a leader by so many lifeguards that I didn't want to be that person. And again, to add a little bit more drama, I ended up having a goal that I set for myself. And that goal was, I, I was reached out to not me specifically, but my lifeguard organization at the time was reached out to by an organization out in Australia saying, if any of our guys wanted to come over and and lifeguard, then, you know, we just had to, we had to pass this physical examination of a run, a swim, a run, and a paddle board. And I read these qualifications and I thought, I can do this. Maybe not now, but if I train hard enough, I can do this. But I also realized I couldn't go anywhere unless I stepped away from this vice. And that vice was being the, the Oxycontin. And so, For me, having that goal was so, so crucial for me to actually have something to work towards to get away from from that lifestyle. And a huge positive for me then as well was I didn't have any social media at the time. I didn't have Facebook, whereas it's so hard to find anyone that doesn't have Facebook these days. But that was a way where I could step away from the toxic people in my life because that was another part that I found to be what was kind of weighing me down was okay, I have good friends and I have bad friends. I don't want to necessarily say bad friends, I take that back, but I have friends that have a problem. And if I'm around them, I'm going to be doing exactly what they're doing. And I found myself slowly kind of stepping away from that group and looking more towards the other lifeguards. Some of my other friends, one specifically who's an uh, employee at Google and he was wor- or going to school out in Austin, Texas at the time. And, you know, he was somebody who I looked to as, okay, this is a guy who's on the straight and narrow, somebody who, if I, if I'm hanging around him, most likely I'm going to be doing exactly what he's doing, which is bettering his life. So for me, I found having a goal and having people to surround myself with that are on the right, right track, what's going to get me away from it. And ultimately it did, you know, it took me about, I'd say from the point of deciding I didn't want to take those drugs anymore to when I left to go to Australia, it was, Oh, it was about a year. It's about a year.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, let's, before we get into your recovery, I think it would be good to just talk about all, all of this and, and how it started. Because, you know, you mentioned something at the very beginning that we were talking about is that you dabbled in some of these drugs and you noticed it did something for you that you liked, but it wasn't enough to kind of push you over the edge, I guess. But then you had this accident, and you needed pain medication to get through it. And that's where it led to you really having to wrestle with letting this go, this pain medication go. So let's go back and talk a little bit about the accident, because it's pretty profound in and of itself. And I know that's not the highlight of this story. The highlight is really the recovery, but I think this sets the stage for that.
1: Right, it does. And it's it's interesting because I thought a lot about this why I I had that struggle with the feeling that that drug gave me and the reason is because it replaced the feeling I get from either surfing or jumping out of airplanes and that's I've been surfing my dad taught me how to surf when I was 3 years old he started pushing me into waves and I got that you know everyone says surfers say it's a feeling only a surfer knows and it's very true well growing up in Cocoa Beach Florida it's it's flat most of the time even though we have the world's best surfer coming from there, Kelly Slater, it's not the ultimate, the perfect place, perfect destination to be a full-time surfer. So to get a different kind of feeling, I started jumping out of planes when I was 18. And I found myself becoming slowly addicted to doing that because I got that, that solid rush. I, I joke a lot about it, but it's very true. When I saw the movie Point Break in the mid-90s, I was like, oh, I want to be that guy. I want to be Bodie jumping out of planes, surfing, getting girls. And it seemed like a, a really fun lifestyle. So I, I continued to skydive for a number of years. And then I, I decided to invite my mom along. Well, she actually made the decision. She wanted to do this. She said, oh, I want to go. Her and her best friend decided we want to go and do the skydive on April 11th, five days before my birthday. So it turned into this big, giant you know, this, this big event for me. Right. I I remember specifically a few days before telling all the lifeguards on the beach, like, Hey, my mom's going to come and go skydiving for the first time. And she'd never watched any videos. She never once came to the drop zone to see me do this. So to have her go and experience it with it with me was just, was amazing.
0: So it could even add to that rush of uh, this experience. You know, it's like, you are already getting a high from this high intensity and then to have your mom join you in that yeah that would be let's go
1: exactly i mean it would in again specifically i remember her sitting on the plane and i just had this feeling like wow my mom is getting involved with something that means so much to me and you know, that that was just that was a good feeling and then once i made that jump and i did what i always do i i most of the time i jump by myself Oftentimes, and sometimes I jump with other people, and we do what's called free flying, which is just most like acrobatics in the air. You fly in the sitting position, head down position, uh, reach high speeds. And I was one of the first ones out of the plane that day, and I decided I wanted to pull my my ripcord, deploy my parachute a little bit lower than I usually do, or than I usually did at about thirty five hundred feet. And then as soon as I deployed my parachute, it was right away I knew something was wrong. I started spinning and I did exactly what I was trained to do in the beginning. I looked up, checked my parachute for any sort of tears, any sort of obvious malfunctions. And then I started thinking too much because I didn't see any sort of obvious malfunction with my parachute. So I started trying to correct the problem. And now the rule with skydiving is you have two attempts to try to correct any sort of issue. And if you cannot correct that issue in two attempts, you cut away the parachute and deploy your reserve. And I broke that rule. I tried too long to correct my problem. I was pulling down on what's called the risers, the rear risers of the canopy. And by doing this, I was able to fly straight. And I thought to myself, if I hold this long enough, I can just prepare for a hard landing. And, you know, this is when I broke the other rule of skydiving is staying altitude aware, making sure you know how high you are above the earth. And, you know, the seconds were just were felt like minutes. And before you know it, I'm I'm completely exhausted out of energy. And I had to let go. And when I let go of the risers, I went back into this spin and and it just became a very violent spin because I was at a low altitude, gaining a lot of speed. And at that point, I was really the the I always say the last thought I really had was, I think this is it for me. I think I'm gonna die. You know, I, I was thinking about my mom, I was thinking. Jesus, like, I can't believe she's going to have to experience this. And, and then that was it for me. It was, it was lights out. And my mom came down. So my mom came in for her final approach and her, her guy that she was going tandem with knew me quite well. And he said that he knew that something had happened. He saw people rushing out onto the field. And as my mom was coming in for her, for her final approach to land, she was waving at her friends. She had a group of nurse friends that were there with her that day. And she was waving, and none of them were waving back to her and That's when the moment she realized it was me on the field and so when she touched down, she rushed over by my side and kneeled kneeled down beside me and i was I was in horrible shape she She only told me one time um years later when I was actually interviewing her about about what she'd saw and her feelings. And, I mean she said I resembled a rag doll, and you know they they didn't think I was going to survive because the the injuries were so extreme, and, but they airlifted me to Holmes Regional Medical Center in Melbourne, Florida, and they, they put me in a five-day medical-induced coma and um, repaired my body. And then I woke up on my 26th birthday on April 16th, opened my eyes, and I had rods in my legs and my arms, and uh, the doctor told me my injuries. I had shattered my right femur, and they nearly had to amputate. Uh, the left femur broke in half, my right ulna, the lower arm broke, the humerus, the upper arm, the right arm broke in half. I shattered my condyle, which is it's the hinge of your, your jaw. I shattered my right condyle. I fractured and dislocated my left condyle. I fractured my skull and I broke nine teeth that had to be extracted.
0: Holy moly. I mean, that's just wow. What an incredible story. And and just to be to wake up of that, it sounds like for you, you didn't even, you kind of knew that you were going, going down and then you blacked out and then you wake up and you only know this from the story of your mom.
1: That's it. Yeah. I mean, I, I I had that blackout of, I've, I've said, I think due to the centrifugal force along with fright, just that thought like, Oh, this is, I'm going to die. That, that, those thoughts and that, just me spinning i think that's why i felt i passed out but i was told that i was making noises on the ground and i held up an arm when they were putting me into the helicopter to airlift me and i even reported to the nurses when they got me to the hospital that i had pain in my legs my arm and my jaw i don't of course i don't remember any of it right um but yeah during those traumatic experiences your brain just oftentimes shuts down
0: right definitely so with that incredible story. So you wake up in the hospital from a coma, obviously in a lot of pain.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they they had me and they did have me said quite doped up throughout. But that struggle was really once they had to start getting me to start moving and everything like that is when I started feeling a lot of the pain. But initially, when I woke up, it was actually, I think it was the day before my birthday when I reached up and I, this was all subconsciously. I didn't. I don't recall much except for the pain. But they had me nasally intubated while they worked through uh, extracting all my teeth and and clearing out my airway. I reached out or I reached up and I pulled the the nasal can or not nasal cannula, but the tube that w- that they used to intubate me to breathe. That pulled that out of my face, and I remember that pain. And then it was the next day on my birthday when they decided I was I was breathing on my own. I was well enough, but. Yeah, I mean throughout that stay in the hospital there were times it was excruciating pain but they also had me on the the morphine drip as well. Right. Where right. if I started getting pain then I could hit that button.
0: So then you you obviously had to get into to rehab and that must have taken some time.
1: Yeah, that so it was about 2 weeks in the hospital and then once they found that I was able to actually at least be able to be in a wheelchair I went to a it was I've, I've always said it's, it was almost like an old folks home. I was by far the youngest person there and I was not weight bearing on, on my legs. So I was restricted to a wheelchair. And so there was really, it was hard to stay motivated when I was in that environment. And to make matters worse, I, I ended up, I was put on speech therapy in that first rehabilitation center. And it wasn't the approval wasn't given by my oral surgeon. So when I went back for a follow up on my jaw, he questioned why I was put on the the speech therapy, and that resulted in a surgery where I wake up and, and my mouth was then wired shut, and I had to have my mouth wired shut for two months. So I then had my mouth wired shut, and I was confined to the wheelchair. And that was a state of depression, whereas at the same time, I had to be very grateful that I could still move and that I could still function and that there was hope. But at that time, it was really hard to even see a flicker of hope with with those kind of injuries and to be kind of restricted.
0: I would imagine because here you are it sounds like an incredibly active person, adventurous, you know really wanting the, the rush from doing these things that are kind of a little on the edge, I guess you know a little riskier and create a high sense of uh, mood I guess. and then here you are now stuck in a home in a wheelchair, unable to move, unable to do anything. Yeah, I would. I could not see how you wouldn't sink into a dark place.
1: Yeah, and I reached out to somebody who went through something very similar to me. Her name's Karina Holikum, and she's from Norway. She's a base jumper. And she suffered a very similar accident to the one that, that I had. And she gave me my first little bit of hope. She said, don't think about the things that you can't do now. It's only going to make you sad. Instead, think about the little things that you can do every single day where you can see a little bit of progress. And I remember from that day, I started journaling. And I I still, I didn't have use of my right arm because of the breakage. So I started using my left hand to just write these little journal notes on who came to visit me and what it was that I did. And then at the bottom, I'd write, think positive, stay positive. And that was the beginning of my my journaling. And I mean, since then, I journal nearly every single day. And it's, uh, that I found was such a great way of just tracking progress and and seeing some sort of of progression. Because if you don't see progression, it's, it's hard to really get motivated or think, okay, this is getting better. But to really keep the the journal was like a, yeah, a way to track the progression.
0: And what's also really profound in what you said is that you reached out for help. You asked somebody who had a similar experience to you, to, to you, how did you survive?
1: Exactly. And because I really didn't understand how nobody, nobody does. When you're in that kind of a situation, you just don't know, like, all right, what what am I going to do now? And so then to, to see and hear of somebody who went through something so similar is like, all right, what do you have to say? And I'm going to listen. And since then, it's been I mean, I always think back to that. I'm going through something not nearly as serious now, but I've got a serious injury to my foot and I had to have a skin graft and I'm just getting back to walking and running. And so, But I still think of that and I still use it. I go, okay, today's a little bit easier than it was yesterday. And it it works and it is asking for help. It's asking somebody who's been, maybe not identically what you've been through, but something that's similar and that they're gonna give you some sort of, of advice on, okay, well, this is what I did. Maybe try this and it could work for you.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's like, you know, especially when you're talking about addiction and people struggling with addiction, that's one of the hardest things that a lot of times they don't do is to reach out and say, Hey, I need support. How did you get through it?
1: Oh, that's, that's a good question. A lot of it for me was not spending the time around people that I felt were going to drag me down. And that's one of the hardest parts because sometimes those are those are the people you grow up with or your best friends or sometimes even family. But then to find somebody, I mean, to find somebody who you can look to as as inspiration or somebody who you can call if you need help. And for me, it was it was a good friend of mine who I mentioned before who you went to some really really great schools growing up and Somebody who, um, for me, was like a—I can't really say he was a mentor, but somebody who was like, "All right, I'm not going to let this friend down," and I'd kind of just stick beside them and kind of, in a sense, follow in their footsteps as far as going down the right path. Versus some of my friends who I still love, but it's like, okay, I see where they're going, and it's not in a good direction. And also, I mean, again, it, it's it's so difficult when we have all this social media, and it's so easy to to contact somebody. So I felt for me, it was it was a little bit easier since i didn't have facebook or instagram at that time and i could just focus on okay the good people the people who i see as future leaders or people that are going to continue to inspire and motivate me throughout my life
0: so in a way you consciously said to yourself who am i going to surround myself with that mirrors what i want my life to be
1: that's exactly it i mean it, there's that saying you are the people who you you surround yourself with you look at the you know, to take three to five people that you surround yourself with, who you talk to all the time. And then you have to ask yourself, are they people that are going to be leaders? Are they people that are going to inspire? Are they going to motivate? And if they aren't, then you got to ask yourself Are these the right people I should be around.
0: And right, yeah,
1: that's one of the hardest parts. And it, it really is. I mean, I, I lost a few friends, but I gained some good ones by doing that. And I've found who my, my lifelong friends are. And I mean, my, my one buddy, I still talk to him. Almost every single day, and it's you know, and and it's constantly pushing your your friends as well, and they push you back as far as doing the right thing and and sticking on a good routine and not slipping back into those those bad habits.
0: Yeah, those are the people you want in your life. You know, the people who are going to help you be your best self. Exactly. You know, to help you push yourself, to help you go through those uncomfortable moments when you need someone behind you, kind of edging you on to say, Hey, this is good for you. Go do this. Even though it's difficult, even though it's hard or don't give up or, you know, or call you on your BS too. When you, when you, you know, when you can't see it yourself.
1: (laughs) Oh, it's true. And family too. I mean, it's, it's definitely something that, and you know, a lot of people, they don't necessarily have family and that's why it's important to have at least a good friend or somebody who you can really look to and, but to communicate. I mean just to communicate and if you're if you feel like you're struggling, I mean I've have, I've have another really good friend who lives on one of the islands in Indonesia and he's been a recovering alcoholic for I think he's going on 29 or 30 years and he went through the the AA program and I mean having a sponsor it's it's kind of you know I never went through AA, I never went through any sort of program although I'm still a huge believer in having somebody who's going to support you and that you can say, Hey, I'm, I'm not feeling that great. And maybe I feel like turning back to old ways. And, and that friend is the person who's going to say, no, okay, this, these are the reasons why you shouldn't because without that support, it's difficult.
0: Right? Yeah. So someone like in 12 step, like a sponsor, who's gonna, you can talk to and can give you advice and will give you honest feedback that you, that might be uncomfortable, but is helpful.
1: Oh, massive, massively. Massively helpful, and, and it can be too. It can be. I, I grew up n- never wanting to ask for help, and I mean now it's. I, I see how how much you can get from asking for help. I mean, when it comes to your work life, your your relationships. I mean, and and again, it definitely goes with addiction. I mean, asking for help is is. I'd say, in my opinion, one of the one of the top factors of what you need to be focusing on doing.
0: Absolutely. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. And so how your addiction began to develop as you had, you had to use these painkillers. I mean, you couldn't have functioned without them.
1: No. And that's, that's why I say it was a double-edged sword because it was okay. I can, I'm not going to sit there and and push myself through, through straight, like agonizing pain, although I'm going to push myself through discomfort. And for me, That discomfort was getting on my bicycle and riding my bike to a pool that was a couple miles away from where I was living at the time and getting myself in that pool and swimming laps and just doing this on repeat day after day. And so I became addicted to those. They were hobbies where at the same time it was rehabbing. And I mean, my job was was such a strenuous one to be a lifeguard on the beach. I was like, okay, I need to get back and I need to get get back ASAP. Because in the between uh, getting back on the beach and after I was out of rehab, I was in a, a cubicle at the fire rescue center. And that, that definitely wasn't my lifestyle. So I was like, all right, I need to get back on the beach where I belong. So the painkills, they gave me the, that feeling of being able to push through any sort of discomfort. Whereas then once I realized I didn't need them anymore to get, there was no discomfort. All it was, was my head. Right. So then I had to find a way of just utilizing those natural endorphins, the endorphins that I get from usually jumping out of an airplane or, or surfing.
0: So you started to realize that you were using these pain medications, not because you really had pain, but it helped you elevate your mood or your feelings.
1: Exactly. It was the replacement for what I get from doing What I'd like to do: surf or jump out of planes, and and that's why it got so tricky because it was like, okay, once I found myself able to do it again, and that's why I ended up going back to skydiving too because I realized, okay, well, I need to I need to do this again to get that feeling because I can't just go and surf every day and get that feeling. So that's around the time. I mean, I started skydiving again one year after the accident. So for quite some time, I was still utilizing the pills, and I was skydiving, and I was lifeguarding. I was functioning. Although the big one for me was realizing, okay, well, I'm, I'm leaving the country. I'm going to Australia. I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this goal of lifeguarding over here. Right. And there is no way I'm going to be able to take this with me. So that's having that big, that, that was, I I feel like the big one for me was having that goal and then going, okay, cut everyone off, focus on what I was doing before and I, I can do it and I'll have to replace the pain pills with a different kind of motivation, and for me, that right, be, right, yeah, you know, it was music and it was staying active and keeping those natural endorphins flowing,
0: right, and and being able to do that in the midst of um, as you're struggling with, you know, you create these feelings, I guess, from the painkillers, right, that kind of help you cope, but then figuring out how to do that without having them,
1: yeah, and that's that's where it can get tricky, and that's where having something. To do that's that's physically active. It doesn't have to be jumping out of planes. It doesn't have to be surfing. But it it should be something that's going to allow you to get your body moving and your heart racing, because those those natural endorphins are real. I'm not really a runner, but that runner's high is very real. And I mean, you can you can look and that goes into so many different things. Like in surfing, we call it the rhythm, where you get into this rhythm of surfing, and you're having so much fun, and you're just focusing on what you're doing like the same thing with flow state and you're, you're writing or you're drawing or you're doing art, yoga, whatever it is. And you get into this, this state of mind where that feeling just basically takes over. Whereas if you can find that something, then that will replace the feeling.
0: Right. So when did you begin to realize that, Hey, I'm, I'm maybe using this, these drugs in a way that is detrimental to me.
1: I, it's it's funny. Just recently, my my dad just read uh, my new book, and I and I expose a lot. I, I tell everything when it comes to the problems I had and and why I decided to stop taking them. But my dad recalls remembers the the exact day of when he was saying, "Oh, you came to me and you said you weren't able to get the script filled, so I didn't have the the drugs." And I was at the time I was teaching a rookie lifeguard class, and it was. All of a sudden my mood I just got besides just a, a bit of depression, it was just kind of anxious and grumpy and and all of a sudden I found myself kind of taking that out on the the group of lifeguards I don't know i I can't remember specifically how it was, but i I probably wasn't being nice or I wasn't being easy and or not being a good teacher mentor coach whatever. but my dad remembers me going to him and saying, you know I, I don't want to do this anymore i'm I'm not treating." this crew of lifeguards not treating them right. And that for me was kind of like, okay, obviously this is starting to rub off on other people. I'm not hurting myself, I'm hurting others. And for me, that was kind of the breaking point of, okay, I need to, I need to get off this. I need to start getting myself on, on a path where I don't have to rely on a substance.
0: Wow. So you started to see it. You, you kind of knew that this had to change.
1: Oh, for sure. And I was sitting in, so where I grew up in Cocoa Beach, if you head south, you get to where I go to the pain clinics in South Florida. And I remember sitting in one of the smaller pain clinics after the main one I went to was shut down for legal practices. I was sitting in one of the smaller ones. It was actually in Kissimmee. And there was a girl that was my age at the time, mid 20s. And she was sitting across from me, really, really pretty girl. And she was just nodding out, like just sitting there waiting to see this doctor and just, nodding out. And it just, that, I, I, I mean, I can shut my eyes and picture it. And it was like, what, what am I doing here? Like, I, I've, I've got to, this isn't me. Like, this isn't my scene. Why am I sitting here? And, and I even verbalized to the doctor, like I said, look, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I, you need to help me. And he seemed so shocked because most of the time people in that clinic were being escorted out. If they weren't given their drugs, they had a security guard that was there. And if, if they got, if they weren't given their script, it was usually, they were really upset. So it wasn't that often where somebody would actually go in there and request, Hey, help me. I don't want to be on these anymore. Um, so just verbalizing to the doctor and then he put me on the drug Suboxin to wean me off the, the Oxycontin. And then on that, journey of being on the Suboxone, which gives you a, a very similar feeling. It's a it's an easier way to really break away from all pills entirely. And then it was just dealing with a bit of the, the depression and being very lethargic, very lethargic, and then still feeling a little bit of the pain in, in, in the body, but just having to push through.
0: So it sounds like in some ways, as you're talking, it sounds like, okay, I, you know, I stopped the drugs, but there was a, a real time for you that you really had to, to get some support. I mean, get on Suboxone. I mean, these, were, these drugs were really in your system and you were really tied to them in a way.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, it, it was so long that I was just dependent on, on those pills that to get away from it was, I mean, I'd say it too. I'd say, I don't want to do this anymore. And then I'd wake up the next day and I'd be like, I really, I really want, I, I want this drug. And then of course, having it was, it was, it made it so easy. But then once I decided not to, and I didn't have the script,
0: right, then right. it was
1: like, okay. And I, and I wrote about this as well, that I did slip a couple of times. I call up a friend who I know still had him and I go over to his house and I'd see the same people that I was hanging around with before, but I'd see how they had deteriorated in the time that I wasn't around them. And then seeing that, I went home and I started feeling guilty. And I was like, I I can't be around those people anymore. Wow. And then it was kind of just slowly tapering away from not only the drug, but the people as well.
0: So you really had to switch your whole life. And a lot of people who go into recovery talk about that. You know, they're like, I have to get those people out of my life so that it's just too easy to do it otherwise. It's too easy to get the drug. And it's too hard for me to say no.
1: Exactly. I mean, because that, that, that was it. I'm—I'm I'm I wouldn't go over there and be around them unless I was doing the drug. And I mean, and then for me, once I wasn't actually somebody who who had the drugs, all of a sudden I wasn't really that yeah. important to those people anymore. So I mean, it goes to show you. Oftentimes, those people aren't hanging around you because of who you are; they're hanging around you because of of what you do, and and you're contributing to their their bad habits and their bad patterns. And I remember when I stopped taking those, the even the Suboxone, mainly when I was off the Suboxone entirely, I was I was so excited what it felt like to be me. Because for those years after the skydiving accident, I didn't know what it was like to be in my own skin. And then to be able to go out and go surfing and not be on any sort of a substance, it was a really, really good feeling. Whereas those other people, they were still doing doing the same drugs. And now, I mean... Tell you, 10 years later, eight, well, yeah, about 10 years later, a lot of them are either in, in jail or a lot of them died from overdoses on those same drugs.
0: Yeah. It's totally, it's so sad when you see that. I mean, in some ways when you get in recovery, it's like, wow, I was, I was lucky. You know, it was hard work. It's hard work, but I'm also lucky not to be there.
1: Oh, for sure. And I mean, I, it was extreme enough to where I, I left the country, you know, I went to the other side of the world and it's, uh, and I mean, again, I I went to the extremes in a lot of it as well. Whereas I know now how I'd go about it, even if I would have stayed in the U S and it's all about that circle of friends. It really is. And having, you know, you don't have to have goals, but having goals is good. Having something to aim for of why are you doing this? I mean, And then it comes back to the the circle of friends or your family or the people you love and just knowing you don't want to disappoint them. You wanna you wanna make sure that they're happy with you and and that you're being the best person that you can be.
0: Right, right, definitely. You know, when I listen to your story, I I kind of come away with a few things. It's one one is the first one is change your environment, do that. Then the second one is take small, you just need to take small steps going forward and then, you know, have a little bit of a vision, uh, build your life one, one piece at a time.
1: Oh, exactly. I mean, I, I'm reading this book now. I think it's an older book. It's uh, atomic habits. And I was talking to my mom about it just, just the other day and how, I mean, it's, it's, that's exactly what it is. It's besides that environment, which I, I find to be very crucial in itself, but Building on the right habits and how you're not going to see that drastic change the next day, or maybe not even in a week. But when you stick to those little habits and then they start becoming a part of your everyday, you become addicted to those good habits. Yes. And that's when you start to see. Yeah. And then you can see the change and you can see, okay, well, I don't need the substance. I can find my enjoyment in something that's, that's, yeah, not the drug or not alcohol, whatever that is. But that's important. I mean, just knowing that it's not going to change the next day. Right. Whereas over time it will, you have to stay consistent.
0: Right. And then I was going to add one, one more important part that I think you mentioned is reach out for help, ask for help, get support. You asked, you know, in the midst of your darkness, waking up from your coma and rehab, you asked for help. And then you went to the doctor where you were getting your scripts and you asked for help. And You know, I find that as such a common theme in people who are able to overcome their addiction as their, that willingness to ask for help, that willingness to change their environment and just doing it one day at a time.
1: Oh, massive. And and like I said before too, I, I wasn't the person who asked for help when I was a kid. My dad always says, and my mom, like I was very stubborn. Even through my teenage years, I was very stubborn. So, I mean, if I can do it, anyone can do it because it's, and then once you do ask for help and you see what it can do for you, then yeah, you start asking a lot more because you know that it's, it's the right thing to be doing.
0: Right. So it sounds like you're having quite the adventurous life now. Tell me a little bit about how things are in the present.
1: Yeah. So now it's, I'm going through something a little bit similar as far as overcoming an injury. I, I, I took on a new job role. I'm here in Indonesia and I've been here for about five years now. I worked at a surf camp for two years here. And then I worked at a surf camp in Lombok for two years, which is the island just east of Bali. And in November, I decided I kind of just needed something a little bit different, something that was going to be something with a bit more of a of a future for a, for a grown man. You know, I loved learning working as a surf coach is great. Whereas I just turned 37. I'm like, all right, I need something a little bit different here. And so in November, I, I was reached out to by uh, an amazing resort that's on an Island called Sumba and the resort's called Nihi. And it's a very, very uh, amazing resort. One, um, best resort or best hotel in the year by, uh, travel, travel and leisure, I believe it is 2016 and 17. And so when I, when I was offered that job, I, I was still obviously working at, in Lombok, so I had to communicate with my boss, and he saw the opportunity and let me take on that role. So I, I officially took the role in late December, and on January 1st, I developed staph infection from a small cut on my foot, and it, it got really bad to where I ended up having to undergo surgery, and they cut out, I'd say, probably about a third of my foot. And they had to cut the out. Yeah. And then after that, um, it had to heal. And then I had to go through a skin graft. So they took skin from my inner thigh and placed it over my foot. And then I had to let that heal. And this all was on January first, is when it all began. And as I'm as we're sitting here right now talking, my days consist of going to the beach with my dog and walking and getting myself physically able to go and take on the position the position at this resort is the boathouse manager so i basically manage a group of uh, roughly 30 sumbanese staff who are lifeguards, watermen, engineers and they don't speak english so i've i've had to really master my skill set with the language of bahasa indonesia and along with that just preparing myself mentally to go over there into this new environment and join this team and but i mean the opportunity is massive it's a it's a big one and i mean overcoming this awesome yeah i constantly think back to what i went through with my skydiving accident i'm like all right well it's just my foot you know and it's uh it's something that i know is going to get better and it's going to get back to i'd say nearly 100 um so i'm on a on a good path a good good trajectory for a new uh new career
0: right and sometimes, you know, our hardships that we suffer in our life can really help us with our current hardships because sometimes they can really put them in perspective and and kind of go, you know what, I, I've been through really hard, difficult times and this is not necessarily one of them. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to have that perspective. So, wow, Tyler. So. If anybody's out there listening, maybe they're struggling or feeling a little depressed or feeling a little hopeless or um, anything like that, what would you want to tell them? What would be the message you want to give them?
1: I'd say first and foremost, reach out. Reach out to whoever it is that you know is going to be able to help you, whether it be friends or family. And then also, you need to make the decision for yourself that you want to change and you want to get on the right path. And Besides reaching out, I also find to be one of the most important things that help me for sure is writing things down, the importance of writing things down. And, and I'm looking as we speak right now, I have a, I mean, I, I get obsessive with it as far as a to-do list. I make full, you know, full calendars. I'll draw out a calendar and in every box, I have exactly what it is that I want to do for the day. And I make sure, since I wrote it down, I wrote a promise to myself that I'm going to do this, whether it's exercise reading, meditation, I mean, you name it, there's there's certain things and it's going to be different for everyone. Whereas if you write that down, it is like making a little promise to yourself and the satisfaction you get when you cross that off. And then also, so reaching out, writing things down, but also realizing that it's not going to take just one day to change, that it's going to take time, but to stay consistent.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you, Tyler, so much. How can people find out more about you or if they want to contact you, how can they find you?
1: Yeah, the best I'd say is go to my website, tylerfarnham.com, and that has my my email and my Instagram is the same just tylerfarnham. And yeah, shoot me a message if if you need hey, if you need help. I mean, I have um I should be getting back to work. They've actually just given me the notice that when I'm ready to go and start cuz I still haven't even started this new job that I can go over and start on the island and I've given myself probably about another 3 weeks to a month, but in the meantime, I'm sticking my routine to my routine, but I'd be happy to hear from anyone that just, you know, needs a little bit of help or guidance. Um, feel free to reach out.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on to the Addicted Mind. Thank you for sharing your story. And I'll, I'll put all those links in the show notes as well. But Tyler, just, yeah, thanks for coming on and sharing your your amazing story.
1: Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Dwayne.
0: All right, everyone, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be at Addictedmind.com. And if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind, please rate and review us or share the podcast with a friend. I definitely appreciate it so much. And also, if you would like to share your message of hope, go to theaddictedmind.com forward slash hope and record some audio of your story of hope so that i can feature them on the addicted mind podcast i'd love to have your voice of hope and recovery on the podcast so that other people can know that recovery is possible that people do get better and people do change their life so if that's right for you please think about doing that i'd love to start getting those on the podcast and sharing them as well All right, everybody, I hope that you have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode.